0: The following message is from Ridgewood Church in Greer, South Carolina. For more information, visit RidgewoodGreer.com. Now, there is this letter that was discovered that's been dated to about 130 A.D., about 100 years after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and there's only one manuscript of this letter that exists. It comes from uh, uh, this, this long tradition of Christian apology. That is to say, Christians who would write defenses against some of the false accusations that were made about the things that Christians did in their gatherings. This particular letter celebrates the distinctiveness of the Christian faith. And I just, I am obsessed with it. And I have read it here before, and I'm going to read it again, and I think you also will be obsessed with it. It's called The Letter to Diagnotis. Let's begin. I have it on the screen. Christians are indistinguishable from other men, either by nationality, language, or customs. They do not inhabit separate cities of their own or speak a strange dialect or follow some outlandish way of life. Their teaching is not based upon reveries inspired by the curiosity of men. Unlike some other people, they champion no purely human doctrine. With regard to dress, food, and manner of life in general, They follow the customs of whatever city they happen to be living in, whether it is Greek or foreign. And yet, there is something extraordinary about their lives. They live in their own countries as though they were only passing through. They play their full role as citizens, but labor under all the disabilities of aliens. Any country can be their homeland, but for them, their homeland, wherever it may be, is a foreign country. Like others, they marry and have children, but they do not expose them. They share their meals, but not their wives. They live in the flesh, but they are not governed by the desires of the flesh. They pass their days upon the earth, but they are citizens of heaven, obedient to the laws. They yet live on a level that transcends the law. Christians love all men, but all men persecute them. Condemned because they are not understood, they are put to death, but raised to life again. They live in poverty, but enrich many. They are totally destitute, but possess an abundance of everything. They suffer dishonor, but that is their glory. They're defamed, but vindicated. A blessing is their answer to abuse. Deference their resp- response to insult. For the good that they do, they receive the punishment of malfactors. But even they rejoice as though receiving the gift of life. It's hard to overstate how much Christianity, the practice of the way of Jesus, how incredibly foreign it was to the ancient world. I mean, it was something that was completely and utterly distinct. And it's hard for us to imagine, I mean, in Greer, South Carolina, right? It's hard for us to think about how revolutionary and distinct the Christian faith was when it first emerged. About five or six years ago, I read a book by a guy named Larry Hurtado that was really, really helpful. It was about how Christianity emerged in the Roman world and how So much of what we take for granted about the nature of religion, and and gosh, just the the ways that we think about society more generally, has its roots in Christianity. The spirit through early Christians turning the world upside down. Some online lookers looked at the the early Christians as, as a group of wild, weird, nasty, strange, repellent people, and yet, even in spite of that, it grew to eventually supplant the old gods of the Roman world. To completely replace the old re- notions of religion and faith and personhood and ultimately God. This book, by the way, it's got a fantastic title. It's called The Destroyer of the Gods. It talks about how the early Christians and the practice of the early Christian faith was the destroyer of the gods. Now in our passage today, we've been seeing Paul on this third missionary journey. The Apostle Paul was an early Christian missionary and theologian who was traveling all over the Roman Empire to the ends of the known world at the time, preaching the good news about Jesus that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah who died, who died according to the scriptures, but who was raised according to the scriptures, and who was exalted as the king over all nations. And he has sent out his spirit to send his church to testify to his kingship. Paul goes around the Roman world preaching that gospel, that good news. We've seen most recently, he's gone to Athens, which is sort of like the ancient equivalent of somewhere like Boston. He went to uh, Corinth, which is something like the ancient equivalent to New York. And last week we said, as we saw Paul first in Ephesus, that it's sort of like Asheville on steroids, kind of fully grown. Last week we saw Paul doing extraordinary miracles, or more accurately, the Lord doing extraordinary miracles through the Apostle Paul. As a result, some traveling itinerant Jewish exorcists, they see the Apostle Paul doing these miracles, and they want access to the magic that they think Paul has. They've decided that the name that Paul keeps using, the name of Jesus, the name in which he casts out demons and heals diseases, must have some juice to it. And if we could use that name, maybe magic is a lucrative industry, casting out demons is a lucrative industry, maybe we'll have access to that same juice if we use that name. That happens in verse 17 of chapter 19. These itinerant Jewish exorcist Kenneth Copeland types, they go try and use the name of Jesus to make a buck, and the result is that this demon-possessed man leaps on these guys, masters these guys, and overpowers these guys, and the result is they flee the house naked and wounded. Just a huge L, right? Completely humiliated. And word spreads. As a result of this, word spreads. You go from seeing in that passage people who want to use Jesus' name for their own ends to a kind of holy dread settling on the city of Ephesus, a good, like the best kind of dread. It leads to them forsaking their practice of magic and extolling rather than using the name of Jesus. Now, here in this passage today, the interplay of magic and greed in the name of Jesus surfaces again. But it's not nearly as exciting as last week because at, at, at its heart, the, the, well, we'll get there in a second. Let's just read. Let's, we'll get there in a second. Hold that thought. Acts 19, chapter 19, verse 21. Now, after these events, the events of the sons of Sceva, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. All right, so we remember several chapters ago that uh, I mean, several chapters ago in the Book of Acts, that the the the, the, the church's kind of first founding, and, and the, when the Spirit descends on the disciples, it's in the city of Jerusalem. And there's been this ever expanding advance of the gospel outwards. And Paul plans to go back to Jerusalem to report all that he's seen the Spirit do all around the Roman world. It's, it's actually really interesting to see how this, um, this early kind of interconnected network of Christians is developing all across this area. And, and part of the New Testament is a result of this early interconnected network of Christians. They're writing letters back and forth, updating one another, providing funds to help feed one another. It's, it's really amazing to think about what's actually taking place here. But we're told that Paul wants to stay in Asia for a while, stay in Ephesus, though he sent these two brothers forward. Verse 23. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. So we're told that during that time, and I love how Luke does this, he does this all throughout the book of Acts. He he sort of makes a point by saying no little, you know, whatever. No little disturbance begins to emerge as a result of the way. The way is in reference to the Christian faith, the teachings of Jesus. You think about the Sermon on the Mount and how Jesus calls his disciples to live a kind of way. There's there's people who are believing on Christ, who are being saved by Jesus, who are living the way of Jesus, and it's it's chapping the behinds of all sorts of people in Ephesus. Specifically, a guy named Demetrius, who's a silversmith. A silversmith who makes silver shrines to the goddess Artemis. And Luke tells us, he brings no, the, 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 the goddess Artemis brings no little business to the craftsman. Not like we saw last week. Ephesus is this huge city that is known for its enormous temple to the Greek goddess Artemis, which was situated right in the center of the city, a gigantic statue. This, uh, this statue, uh, in, in the, the temple worship was enormously central to the local economy there in Ephesus. Demetrius is a guy who crafts these little silver shrines, and if you have a city full of people flocking to pay homage to the goddess Artemis, they're going to buy these little souvenir silver shrines as a part of their worshipful act. Uh, has anybody ever eaten lunch in downtown Greer, um, kind of throughout the week? What's one thing that you always notice if you go grab lunch in downtown Greer? Somebody from BMW is there. Have you ever noticed how often BMW employees are covering the lunch? I'm not. I'm, it's a good thing. BMW employees are everywhere in Greer. The reason downtown Greer has emerged is largely a result of BMW coming to town and all of the industry and commerce and housing as a result. BMW is central to the city of Greer in the same way that something like the Temple of Artemis would have been to Ephesus. It is like ground zero for commerce, and it's the reason people come to the city. And you can kind of see where this is going, right? Trade suffers if Paul and the followers of the way are successful in their mission, It's bad for the local economy for people to become Christians in Ephesus. You have more followers of the way. The result is you have less demand for these little silver shrines that people like Demetrius and his companions make, right? So verse 25, Demetrius gathers together a bunch of craftsmen. Verse 25, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus but in almost all of Asia, this Paul, This Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. What's Demetrius saying? If this Paul keeps persuading people and people keep becoming Christians... We're gonna run into a demand issue. Verse 27, our trade may come into disrepute, AKA, people quit buying our stuff because they quit believing that Artemis is a goddess. And then he adds this little pietistic spin on it. It's noticed there at the the end of verse 27. You know, "Our, our trade could come into disrepute, and also the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. It seems like, given the way that Luke has kind of portrayed the greediness and and sort of the the way that money has motivated a lot of the opponents to the gospel, that that Luke is kind of cynically reporting what Demetrius was saying about his motivations. What I was going to say about, you know, this, this passage isn't nearly as exciting as the passage last week, because actually, at the end of the day, it just boils down to Demetrius being greedy, worshiping the God of money, which is the most boring of sins, because it is the most common of sins, and it is the most present of sins. If you think about the nature of sin, sin is actually, if, if I can say this, don't, don't misunderstand what I mean by this, but it is, it is depressingly boring. Because at the end of the day, you, you know, the human heart for all of history has just sinned in like the same three ways, over and over and over again. And you you want to be different and you want to be exciting? Like, try holiness. Try, try being different by being generous and hospitable, by being unlike everyone else and unlike all of the the history of the world prior to us. Of course, we know which God is really being challenged here by the advance of the gospel. It's, yeah, Artemis is being challenged, but at the end of the day, it's Mammon that's being challenged. If people keep becoming Christians, they'll quit buying our stuff, and that's not good for business. So Demetrius gathers all these craftsmen together. He gives this fine speech, and what happens? Verse 28. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. A, a riot begins to take place, a riot that snowballs, that begins with the craftsmen, and then it gathers momentum. And if, if, if you've ever seen, maybe not in, in person, I mean, the thing that I think about is like the Black Friday mobs, the way that they just kind of just you know, snowball and get worse and worse, and it's just absolutely crazy. It's kind of in a similar way. This movement kind of gathers momentum, and people are roped into this mob, and it says that there's confusion. There's people who aren't even sure what the confusion's about, but they're kind of happy to jump in and join the mob and join the riot. It reminds me, if you've ever seen the 80s movie uh, Crocodile Dundee 2, if there's like three of us who have seen Crocodile Dundee 2, I know that's a really niche reference, but there's a scene where there's this like, Jim, you've seen it, right? Do you remember the scene when there's like the the mob of people and a bunch of onlookers are like, we got nothing going on. It's a Friday night. We'll join the, the riot as well. It's almost similarly kind of depicted as that. There's a lot of confusion. There's the, the, the mob begins to snowball. People are roped in. They're not even sure what it's about. And we're told that two of Paul's travel companions are actually dragged into the theater, which is the outdoor amphitheater where public hearings would have taken place, in order to accuse them and to, to put a stop to their preaching of the gospel. Verse 30. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, that is some of the local authorities, who were friends of Paul's, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was, again, in confusion. And most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, great is the Artemis of the Ephesians. So notice this, Paul isn't present here, and he's wisely told not to go. We'll consider that a bit more in a second. The crowd snowballs, confusion abounds, it's a kind of mass chaos. And even Alexander, who's a Jew, but who is uh, mistakenly identified as a Christian, is pulled into the thick of this, and he's trying to defend himself that I'm not a Christian, I'm Jewish, and it says that they chant in his face for two hours, great is Artemis. But verse 35, thankfully there's a town clerk who quiets the crowd. Verse 35. The town clerk had quieted the crowd. He said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? There's some belief that there is maybe a meteor or something that came from space that in the ancients' mind identified and marked off the city of Ephesus as a place that was favored by the gods. This is likely what he's referencing. Verse 36. Seeing that these things cannot be denied... You ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion." When he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. What do you think of when you hear the word apologetics? What comes to mind for you? This is another very niche reference, but in the early 2000s, there was a Christian band who covered secular songs with, like, Christian lyrics, and that band was called Apologetics. And for me, I was in middle school in the early 2000s, and I very much enjoyed punk rock and ska and you know, Reliant K, if you're kind of familiar with all of that stuff, Apologetics is right in my wheelhouse. So, for instance, they had a song that was called Message in the Bible that was a cover of Message in the Bottle by the police, right? I was listening to it last night, and I could not believe that adult human beings did this. It was one of those things, you know? But, but then I, I listened to them for like an hour, and so I guess they won at the end of the day. Right? That's what comes to mind when I hear the word apologetics. Oh, The best part is they call themselves a glorified cover band, which is. Uh. <laughs> Love the groans. Now, depending on your background, maybe it's 2000s punk rock for you, maybe it's William Lane Craig or Ken Ham or John Lennox or Tim Keller. What did I say? John Lennox? Not John Lennon, John Lennon. That Beatles reference was last week, Peggy. John Lennox. Whatever your background might be, there is a long tradition of Christian apologetics. Apologetics not in the sense of uh, uh, apologizing for what we believe, but in the sense of defending the faith against those who would, who would uh, mischaracterize what it is we actually do and what we practice. In the early world, in the ancient world, Christians were sometimes rumored to eat children. That's why. Well. I mean, it was one of the things that people like Justin Martyr had to write in defense of is that Christians don't, in fact, eat children. I mean, there's a lot of talk about baby Jesus. We take the Lord's Supper. Maybe folks kind of conflated that and, and kind of taught, you know, falsely that Christians were, were uh, carniv- uh, cannibals. Christians writing to defend the faith against spurious claims like that and misconceptions. Christians writing to demonstrate the reasonableness of our faith. I mean, there's a long tradition of that in Christian history. Now, think about the opening of the book of Acts. Luke is writing to a character named Most Excellent Theophilus. And we can't be sure, but it seems likely that Theopolis was an important figure, probably a uh, a governing government figure with some interest in the faith. And Luke is writing the story of the church in the book of Acts as a kind of apology for the church. Again, not, not apology in the sense of saying we're sorry for the things that we believe, but apology in the sense of defending the faith, showing the reasonableness of the faith and showing the reasonableness of Christians. So Acts, as much as it's the story of the church, is also the story of how the early Christian movement started and and took root not through revolution, not through the sword, but through persuasion. Through their peaceableness and the miracles they performed and the incredible, undeniable, irresistible news of Jesus Something we've seen time and time again in the book of Acts is Luke demonstrating how there was a, there was the, the gospel comes to town, there's some kind of stir that's created in that community, and the local authorities actually look on to what the Christians are doing. They deem what they're doing to be legal, and they let them go. They grant legal approval to the practice of the faith in the Roman Empire. And so part of what Luke is doing, he's showing people like Theopolis and other readers at his time, like, no, Christians are actually reasonable people. Christians are not revolutionaries. Christians are not trying to overturn the world in the way that you think they're trying to overturn the world. Christians are not insurrectionists. Christians are—they don't commit violence or perform riots and, and revolutions. These things are not our methods. These Christians, they may be something, and they, they may be weird and wild and strange to you, but they aren't doing anything contrary to the law of the land. Now think again on this section. This riot and all of this confusion that's happening in the city of Ephesus. Who is causing the disturbance? It's not the Christians. And Luke actually goes out of his way to locate Paul in the narrative so that we're clear. Paul was not a part of this. It's like, you've probably heard a lot of things about Paul. Maybe you've heard about this riot in Ephesus, and maybe you've heard Paul is kind of implicated in it. Let me be clear. Paul was not a part of this. This was not the Christians doing. This is the nations raging against the Lord and his anointed. This is not something the believers stirred up. Notice how the Christians are vindicated by this town clerk. Verse 35, he quiets the crowd. And then in verse 37, he says, you brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess." They've done nothing illegal. They're not iconoclasts. They haven't gone to, you know, throwing paint on the, the, the statue of the temple of Artemis. They've not done anything deserving of this kind of treatment. Verse 38, the town clerk tells Demetrius that if you have a complaint against these Christians, take them to court. Let the court settle this. Verse 40, he says that they are in danger of being charged with rioting. And the Roman Empire was not in favor of riots in their city. And if word would have made its way to the governing authorities in that area that there was a riot in the city of Ephesus, things would have gone poorly for the town clerk and those who started the riot. So he, he was trying to, to say, like, don't, th- this is not the way that we should handle this. If you have a complaint, take these guys to court. But by my estimation, they have done nothing to deserve this kerfuffle. Verse 41. The story ends with the town clerk dismissing the assembly. Now, as we read this passage, I mean, the the thing that stands out to me about this is how the, the early Christians were the destroyer of the gods, but not in the way that we might think they were. One commentator asked this question about this passage, and I thought it was really, really helpful. He said... In what way, in this passage, is the church depicted as a destroyer of the gods? In what way is the church blaspheming the idols of the world? But it's also helpful to ask, in what way is the church not a destroyer of the gods? In what way isn't the church a blasphemer of the gods of the age? Now, let's be really clear. I mean Jesus comes in 1 John chapter 3 verse 8 we're told Jesus comes to destroy the work of the devil the gods of every age are in Jesus's crosshairs to be sure Jesus came to free us from the grip of these gods mercifully in his kindness the story of the gospel is God looking on us and seeing our ugly devotion to ugly things, that we are oppressed and suffocated by our greed and lust and ambition. And in mercy, God sends Jesus to rescue us, to destroy the gods of our hearts. There's the good old-fashioned obvious gods, the boring ones, sex, power, and money. That's true of each of us. That of every soul who has ever lived, we are assaulted and accosted by these gods, In Philippians chapter 3, Paul says that there are those whose God is their bellies. It's those who are ruled by their appetites. Jesus came to free us from those appetites, to free us from those gods, those lesser false gods. But maybe there's some sneaky gods for our age that's worth considering for just a moment. What are the gods that Jesus is intent on destroying in our hearts? The first one that comes to mind for me is the God of comfort. It's the belief that the point of my life is pleasure. Not the big, ugly pleasures, but the lots of little things that kind of keep me dulled and diluted and my attention kind of spread thin. Jesus comes to destroy the God of comfort, to completely disrupt, destroy, and upend that God in our lives. Jesus also comes to destroy in us the God of consumerism, building our identity through the stuff that we buy. I need to buy and I need to buy and I need to buy and I got to build my sense of self through my stuff that helps me build a brand. God comes to destroy the God of consumerism in our heart and life. Maybe the sneakiest God of all for each of us is the God of autonomy. It's the notion that I am the, the God and arbiter of my existence, that what matters is being my best self. It's actualizing myself. It's being free to be the person that I think I ought to be. It's this belief in autonomy. Jesus came to destroy the God of autonomy as well. The gospel totally disrupts any notion that we belong to ourselves. We did not make us. We did not think us up. I did not put the blueprint together for me. I did not knit me together in my mother's womb. We were made for and belong to a holy God, and our destiny is his choosing, and our life path is by his direction and according to his good purposes. And if we are Christians, we belong to God twice over because he created us and then saves and recreates us. My life belongs to him at every turn. My allegiance is owed to him at every turn. I am not autonomous. I am beneath the rule of King Jesus. What's more, I've been saved not just to God the Father, but to a bunch of brothers and sisters, and so I have obligations to people outside of myself, and I should take those people into account when I say, leave a church, or when i try and land at a church, or when I'm trying to build relationships or restore relationships. I am not the captain of my own fate, and there are other people that are implicated in my discipleship. Jesus comes to destroy the God of autonomy in our lives. Because Jesus is not content to let us be sat upon and oppressed and ruled by these gods who don't know our names, who don't love us, that have no regard for our good. These gods who hate us and these gods who demand that we die for them. But Jesus has come to supplant all of those false gods. Maybe you hear me saying these things and it sounds like Jesus is this Killjoy, who comes to punish us for having fun. But the picture in the scriptures that, is that Jesus, this is a supplanting, a, a displacement, a bigger joy, a greater good, a glorious displacement, a vibrant, potent, unimaginable good, capturing our hearts and offering us something that is so much better than these false lesser gods. Comfort? Are you kidding me? Autonomy? It's a joke. If you're not a Christian, and you're here this morning, hear hear what I'm going to say this morning. What we want for you is for your gods to be destroyed. And we're not saying that as people who, with resentment, we're not saying that as people who don't like you. We're saying that as people who have said, Jesus has destroyed our gods, and I'm telling you, you want him to destroy those gods. And the reality is, is that as Jesus does that work in us we find that there's a little bit of Demetrius in all of us. We're sneaky and we're backhanded and we don't want to be honest about the reality of our own heart. And it's going to feel, like Luke says, like no little disturbance is taking place in this little Ephesus right here. We've been there. We, we, we recognize that it feels like a death and it feels like a rebirth. But that is what Jesus has come to do. It's to destroy those gods and to supplant them with something real, with a capital R, and good with a capital G. The way that Jesus wants to destroy these gods is he wants to start first in our hearts. But I find it interesting that Paul also models and teaches in the New Testament more more than just that Christianity is a destroyer of the gods, but also how Christianity is to be a destroyer of the gods. A few chapters ago, Christians were accused of turning the world upside down, which is just the best. What does it look like for us to turn the world upside down? It's peaceable, and it's quietly, and it's simply. Paul speaks to that question in First Thessalonians 4, verse 9. I'll have it on the screen. Paul says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you brothers to do this more and more. And to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. So that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Paul's vision here for believers, for Christians, is a life of simplicity. It is quiet lives being taught by God how to love one another. How to love each other and our brothers and sisters here and around the world. And Paul says do this more and do this more and do this more and do this more. Live quietly, mind your affairs, live well before outsiders, respectably and peaceably. We destroy gods through the preaching of the gospel. We we destroy gods with the alternate, contrasting flavor of our lives. Living lives of joyful sexual sanity, living lives of open handedness with full tables and full calendars, living hopefully and joyfully with hospitality. We destroy the gods with our life together as a church family, sharing meals but not our spouses. We destroy the gods with appeals. Notice how Paul's work is described in verse 26. Through persuasion, we tell a better story, the gospel story. We call the false gods of the world what they are and watch the spirit change hearts. But listen, we don't destroy gods through force or violence or intimidation. It's a good word for us in our political landscape today. The the letter of diagnosis, however you say that guy's name, that letter. We live in our own countries as though we were only passing through. We play our role as full citizens. We play that role. We vote, We we have convictions about these issues, we play our role as full citizens. Any country can be our homeland, but for us, our homeland, wherever it may be, whatever dimension and space and time the eternal kingdom is, wherever that is, that's our homeland. The land from another world is where we belong ultimately. One way to misunderstand, I think, what, what I'm saying and what I think Luke is showing and I think what Paul is teaching is that Christians should not get entangled in politics or cultural issues. That there is no role for, for, the, for, for that kind of work in the life of a Christian. But actually, I think it's good and appropriate for us to live as full citizens. And again, I think we see that happening in Acts. That Paul both models, and I think uh, Luke kind of encourages us through the example of Paul to engage in, through legal channels, uh, savvily navigating the laws of the land to the advantage of Christians, playing our role as full citizens. But we also have to understand that we hope in another world, and so that means we resist worldly means. Violence and intimidation and bullying and the like, that is not the way for the people of Jesus. And I think that's one of the contrasts that Luke is wanting us to see in this passage. We don't use physical force. We, 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 we're not insurrectionists. Larry Hurtado in that book I mentioned a moment ago, he points out that the thing that makes the rise of Christianity so baffling was that its enormous success was not a result of the sword. Unlike Islam and other world religions, the gospel advanced through nations and took over the world by the power of the Spirit. And that's the way that we go about destroying the gods. This is our calling, friends. We're iconoclasts who destroy the gods of consumerism and money and lust and autonomy through love and generosity and hospitality and humility and evangelism. That's our calling as believers in Jesus. I'll say it again. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, we want to see your gods destroyed. And I'll say this again. This is not from spite or resentment, but from relief Because we know what it's like to be unable to breathe down there. And there's fresh air elsewhere. Repent and believe the gospel. What this means is that you would surrender yourself to Jesus. You would say, my my way of doing things is wrong. And I recognize that my heart is a gnarled mess. And and, and I want help from you, Jesus. I submit my ways to you. And I surrender to you for the forgiveness of of, of my sins. Christians talk a lot about Jesus' death. What that means is that he bore the punishment for sin that we deserved. He was judged for us. So that he could give us eternal life and his very spirit. I'll be available in the lobby uh, here after worship is over if you'd like to talk more. if The person that brought you here this morning I'm sure would also love to share more about what it means to be a Christian. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, the question that I would ask of you is how do the old gods still have a foothold in your life? If Jesus and his gospel is the destroyer of the gods, man, what, what little Jerichos in your heart are you still guarding? In what ways do you need to repent? I mean, In the next few moments, as we take some time to pray, would you just ask the Holy Spirit to work in your heart and expose those little corners in you? Ask the Spirit to break those. And we, we ask with full confidence that that goes with the grain of what Jesus wants to do for us, that Jesus does indeed want to destroy those gods in our hearts, be them lust, autonomy, power, money, whatever else. In the next few moments, would you just take some time to pray that the Lord would lead you and guide you into exactly how you're to respond? Christians, as I, as I read this story here in Acts and as I read about the long tradition of our faith, of, of the faithfulness of these brothers and sisters who, who loved each other even through opposition, I mean, it, it, is, it, is, it is my heart and the heart of the pastors here at Ridgewood is that we would have this counter-cultural commitment to one another that would put to shame the gods of our day and age like autonomy. And it's our prayer that we would live alternative lives together that would be a compelling force and greer in our community and the way that we love each other, the way that we serve the poor, the way that we evangelize. Could we do that? Could Could we faithfully devote ourselves to Jesus and one another in a way that stands out and is compelling amongst the eyes of the watching world? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, as we prayed a few moments ago, we need your interrupting grace in our lives. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would work in us by your spirit. I pray for my friends who are here this morning who are not believers, who are not yet Christians. We pray that you would work in their hearts and allow them to see the glory of the gospel. I pray this morning for the brothers and sisters who have been walking with you. God, we pray that you would you know, lovingly confront us with the reality of idolatry in our hearts, that you would supplant that with the greater good. And Lord Jesus, we pray in your grace and and in your mercy that you would fill our church with your spirit such that we would be a contrast community that sticks out in the way that we care for one another, the way that we live lives of sanity and joyfulness and hopefulness. And we pray most of all that, Jesus, you would be made known in all that we say and do as a church. We pray this in your name.